Welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. Thank you for joining us today. Today's topic is a great example of what we really love to do in this podcast, which is talk about the global implications of local events. And the growing protests in Hong Kong are spilling over its borders and taking on U.S.-Chinese geopolitical tints, as well as affecting financial markets and China's relationship with the rest of the world. To help us understand the implications of Hong Kong's protests, we've invited Scott Kennedy, who's a senior expert on China at Washington Center for Strategic and International Studies, and he's an authority on this subject. So, Peter, the 7.4 million citizens of Hong Kong are living their most serious political event since the 2014 Occupy Central protests, but more certainly since the 1997 handover. And many remember the transfer of sovereignty that occurred that July when Hong Kong was returned to mainland China, which ended a 156-year UK colonization. So now Hong Kong is a special administrative region with political and economic systems that are supposedly separate from the mainland. And as often occurs with world protests, one seemingly insignificant spark ballooned into an uncontrollable spiral of violence and discontent, which gets worse and worse every day, collecting issues and causes and discontent and burning into what is now really a hot mess. And the spark that we've read about in the media is over an extradition bill. Over the past week, it's become about so much more about Hong Kong citizens' general anxiety, discontent over a number of issues, including the relationship with China. And with the expanding unrest comes a growing call for the resignation of Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam. So, Muni, the bill that you mentioned was introduced last spring, and essentially it would have allowed individuals, including foreigners, to face trial in China. And that, you know, as you can imagine, that's at the mercy of the Communist Party courts and their arbitrary methods. So this, of course, has raised concerns about justice and, and how the justice is administered, investment security, the protection of human rights in the former British colony. And the bill, though it's now suspended and its scope has been limited, but it turns out that the bill really wasn't, you know, is only the spark that lit the fuse. The protests, which started in March with Hong Kong's parliament in April, They've grown exponentially, gathering students and lawyers and activists and workers, as well as just, you know, people just on the street, parents with children. The marches are estimated to have reached a million to two million people. And just to be clear, I mean, a million to two million people is 20% of Hong Kong's population. Well, obviously, Hong Kong is more and more a deeply divided society. New generations want distance from the mainland. The government, with measures such as this one, shows that it's navigating the enclave even closer to Beijing. And polls that are taken in the past months show a society that is rife with pessimism and youth radicalization. And we can see the young people on the streets. And of course, the key question is how much of the local government's moved, moves are happening at, you know, under China's instruction, under China's autocratic leader, Xi Jinping. And increasingly, it seems like most of them are happening for that reason so what's clear is the lack of responsiveness on the part of Carrie Lam, who doubled down on the extradition bill in, in, during the first protest. And her dismissive attitude toward the protesters have only widened distrust, and she has withdrawn or suspended the bill. But still, the discontent continues. And her opposition, um, has this opposition has now morphed into a proxy for a broader search for democracy and freedom. The protests just, you know, seem to have grown and grown. You know, they reached one peak during the G20 meetings in Osaka, but they've since reached, you know, higher and higher peaks as, uh, you know, I think one of the most symbolic uh, protests, Muni, was 
when protesters actually took over the airport arrivals lounge in at the Hong Kong airport. And it was a sort of deliberate, but at the same time, desperate and very poignant way in which they basically every visitor that came out of passport control and they talked to and handed out pamphlets and bills as they sought to tell their stories to international visitors the minute that those international visitors landed. And yes, the world has taken notice as the crisis moves across the border. And certainly, you know, no one has taken more notice than the Taiwanese who have caught on not only to the discontent, but what happens when you have some type of a joint uh, administration with China. And like most issues today, you know, this one also captures the smoldering tensions between China and the US and China and Europe. And to start, you know, we've already heard from various sources, you know, in the People's Daily, which is basically a Communist Party rag in which we've heard accusations of, you know, the black hand, that's in quotes, or the dark forces of U.S. imperialism uh, behind the Hong Kong demonstrations. Well, Peter, it does seem as we do these podcasts that most of the world's events are kind of in the context of the U.S.-China relationship, none more than this one. And U.S. and China, as we all know, are in open conflict on trade and technology They've been trading accusations of espionage and rigged markets. This is a perfect opportunity to to actually double down on those accusations on both ends. And that yet the U.S. has been surprisingly mild in its reactions to the developments in Hong Kong so far. And they've put uh, the well, Trump has put his relationship with Xi first um, and has expressed repeated calls just for nonviolence, despite the national security concerns that this all generates. And the Western private sector, meanwhile, is already in a you know near panic about the extent of China's influence on business and finance on Hong Kong, which is one of the world's greatest banking centers. Uh, Europe and Canada have not also been that forceful. They have expressed concerns through diplomatic notes of protest. Meanwhile, British Prime Minister, brand new Boris Johnson, is silent, seemingly retaining his love affair with China. And now all eyes are on Hong Kong as concerns grow every day that the tough police responses only generate even more anger and will result in widespread violence. Why has Hong Kong become a hotspot? What happens next? Could she lose his patience? These are some of the questions we can't wait to ask our guest, Scott Kennedy, a leading authority on China at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's the author and editor of six books on China, including most recently, Global Governance and China, The Dragon's Learning Curve. His articles appear in a wide variety of policy, popular, and academic venues. He's currently busy writing his book, tentatively titled The Power of Innovation, The Strategic Importance of China's High-Tech Drive. Welcome, Scott. It's a pleasure to have you on Altamar. Happy to be here. So let me just start by give us a sense of why is there so much anger in Hong Kong today? What's happening that makes this such a difficult and angry place? Hong Kong is an amazing place. Yes, there's a lot of anger. But it's exciting. And this anger that the people of Hong Kong are expressing is about how their lives are being changed on a daily basis and more broadly politically because the society that they inherited in 1997 wasn't a democracy, but there was a strong protection of civil liberties as a result of the relationship with the United Kingdom for 150 years. China promised uh, Great Britain in a treaty in 1984 that it would protect Hong Kong's way of life for 50 years after it reverted. This then became embedded in the basic law that governs Hong Kong. 
but we're 22 years in now. And uh, that way of life is being eroded extremely quickly. And there have been protests many times in Hong Kong, uh, biggest ones in 2014 called the Umbrella Movement. And this is the subsequent successor to the umbrella movement, now the hard hat movement, uh, which is challenging uh, specific changes in, in laws regarding extradition vis-a-vis a government that really isn't listening to them. Can I just, I think you, sure. you said something really important, which is beyond just a law, there seems to be a, an erosion of a way of life. I'm just using your words. Sure. Give us a sense of w- what is that erosion? Well, Hong Kong, if, if you've ever been there, uh, it's not like the rest of China. It feels like a a Western city. There's full freedom of the press, independent judiciary, free and open internet, few barriers to trade and investment. It's uh, originally where China really connected to the rest of the world. It also has a very important uh, local culture based on on Cantonese language, uh, Southern Chinese cultural attitudes and behaviors. It's not like the rest of China. And Chinese people in Hong Kong were promised that that way of life would would remain unchanged, even though sovereignty reverted to PRC in 1997. And it's been eroded through the changes in the educational system, the court system, how the legislature is governed, the behavior of the chief executive, who now Carrie Lam, the, the intrusions by PRC with the uh, uh, detentions uh, of Hong Kong activists, publishers, and this has got everyone upset. And, and if you're young in Hong Kong and you're looking to the future, the economy is slow, there are not a lot of job opportunities, housing is expensive, and your rights are being eroded. So that usual promise of trading freedom for well-off life doesn't exist in Hong Kong, and, and everyone is seeing their economic future and political future be pulled uh, from them step-by-step, uh, thread-by-thread on TV live. So, you know, I, I, because I really want our listeners to understand what what's in the mind of protesters. And do you, do you think, if you look at protests uh, in other parts of the world, the, the, the Yellow Jackets in France, and even you said that, that there were protests in Hong Kong in 2014, is this going to go away and come back in some other form? Is this, do you expect this to the next couple of weeks to be even more difficult? You know, the, the uh, protests and, and anxieties generally felt in Hong Kong have, have evolved and become more radicalized over the last two decades. Uh, in 2014 was a really huge protest, the Umbrella Movement. They occupied downtown Hong Kong, kept it businesses from being able to operate from traffic, uh, being able to move for 79 days. But at that point, there was really a, uh, what they were looking for was universal suffrage uh, because the chief executive is, is currently elected through this election committee of about 1,200 people who are mostly handpicked by Beijing. And so they were pushing for universal suffrage. But there was a big disagreement between uh, the young protesters and the rest of Hong Kong society, which saw them getting in the way of their daily life. Now, there's no gap between those who are on the streets uh, which has gotten to one to two million people, which is almost 20% of Hong Kong's population. I mean, you take that number here, that'd be like 50 million people in the United States out on the street protesting. That That's really massive. And they have, you know, they have specific uh, criticisms about these uh, amendments that the government was trying to, to force through regarding extradition vis-a-vis uh, many places, including China. But it's really about that loss of power and and influence and and voice 
that is being pulled away. So I expect them to not go away. Maybe it'll things will quiet down. But I think we're, we're heading toward a much larger conflict because the Chinese system under Xi Jinping can't coexist peacefully with the old Hong Kong system. So you mentioned the extradition law, which has been the spark that started all of these protests. Um, can you give us an idea of how much this law has been influenced by China and what kind of the darker side of this this new legislation and this? Sure, sure. Well, you know, when Hong Kong was being brought back into China's fold in 1997, there was an effort to pass a law related to extradition to move folks who would be arrested in Hong Kong or detained in Hong Kong and, and send them back to China to face trial. And it wasn't passed. Uh, and they wanted to keep this airlock between Hong Kong's legal system and judiciary and, and the rest of China's. In the beginning of this year, there was a case involving the murder of a Hong Konger in Taiwan that generated the latest dust up in the feeling that you had to close these loopholes with extradition relative to a lot of different places, including China. So uh, Beijing wasn't the one that created a, a crisis that started this, but the way the text of the law, this amendment is written, the push by the chief executive certainly being prodded by Beijing has generated the criticism from the populace and they don't feel uh, the Hong Kong government is listening or they're hearing, but they're, you know, they're not acting on them. And so it is another, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, this, this extradition treaty or, or law isn't, isn't that huge, but it represents another part of the erosion. And that's why you're seeing civil society and societies at large uh, protests so vehemently. So in the beginning, Chief Executive Carrie Lam doubled down and refused to, you know, turn turn back the the extradition law. More recently, she's had a show of support from China. Will she survive this crisis with all these people on the street? I guess it depends how long this goes. She, she's obviously in a very difficult position. She's a a long term Hong Kong civil servant who joined the government in 1980. So she's really uh, she's handpicked by this election committee. She was Beijing's choice. She's really doing what they want her to do. And really, uh, she doesn't have a whole lot of flexibility. So if she messes up, it's basically she's messing up because she's following inst instructions. She said some things that, that sound quite critical of the students, patronizing. Really, the core thing is, is that she represents Beijing. And so if she survives or doesn't survive, it, it's really secondary to the larger story because uh, she's really a pawn in, in this whole game. And, uh, you know, she could make it to 2022 uh, when she's up for election again and she could get it renewed. But she could be withdrawn earlier if there's some uh, real crisis, if, if, there's, if this small scale conflict turns into something that, that's much larger. And I don't think that's the most likely outcome. I think we're going to see this slow burn for a while. Folks go back to their corners and then prepare for the 2020 elections for the Legislative Council when we'll see perhaps a lot more intensity uh, about the rules of the game in Hong Kong. I was struck by something you, you said a couple of minutes ago, which was that Xi Jinping's China cannot coexist with Hong Kong today. So can this spiral out of control? I mean, are we, are we looking at something that potentially could? I know you think that a more likely solution is a slow burn. But what does a loss of control look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the next, what I was saying, in the next six months, I don't think we're going to see a full-scale radicalization and a Tiananmen-like crackdown that would really basically bring Hong Kong's economy and society to a halt 
and have foreign businesses and everyone withdraw. But I think that's not impossible down the road. Originally, the Chinese under Deng Xiaoping and his successors, uh, Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao, were really on a path of trying to integrate with the rest of the world. And Hong Kong was the entrepot to help them integrate, provided an important channel for trade, investment, rule of law, contracts, greater connectivity, an explanation of China to the rest of the world and the explanation of the rest of the world to China. That works really well until China decided that it wants to integrate on its terms with the rest of the world, not on the West's terms. And so Hong Kong's role as an entrepreneur for helping China adapt to the rest of the world is, is, is being withdrawn. At the same time, Hong Kong's uh, role in China's economy has dropped dramatically from 15% of GNP to now under 3%. Shanghai and other parts of China are important financial centers. And they are basically trying to integrate the rest of Hong Kong into Chinese society politically and economically, politically by removing uh, the protections, independent judiciary, the legislative elections, civil society, uh, education, et cetera, economically by integrating Hong Kong into the rest of, of Southeast China, what they call the Greater Bay Project. And so Hong Kong in its current form can't co- coexist well. Folks are making plans if this trend continues, either to slow burn or something more. China would have to change its fundamental direction for what it wants, what it wants its relationship to the rest of the world. And so, yes, Hong Kong is different than Xinjiang. It's different than Tibet, but it faces the same kinds of challenges of being under the umbrella of an authoritarian government that wants a lot of centralized control, does not want a lot of diversity, different political views. Uh, It wants homogenization. Uh, and, and that's not what Hong Kong has been about. But it seems like time is not on Hong Kong's side because, as you just described, it is becoming increasingly a less important part of the China as a whole. I mean, uh, you know, you go to Shanghai, you go to Hong Kong, and, and it, much of it feels to the businessman, much of it feels the same. I mean, there's the same, the same banks, the same companies, the same... Uh, uh, the same willingness to do business. And so I, I, I can imagine that this is uh, the, the Chinese in Beijing, they must feel increasingly like this is times on our side. I'm sure uh, that Beijing is, is playing this based on that expectation that they can wait everyone else out, just like in the South China Sea and Taiwan and, and many other places that they're, they're rising, they're powerful. It's still quite different from the rest of China, having, having been to Hong Kong many times, knowing many people that live there. So the question is, is China going to change its approach or is there something that the U.S., Great Britain or folks in Hong Kong could do to slow this slide, put some type of a backstop against the situation that they're heading in? uh, Or are we going to eventually get to where it really does feel like Guangzhou, Shanghai, Wuhan or Chengdu? I'm quite concerned about that. Let's talk a little bit about the global implications of the crisis, because clearly this is having an effect on... China's relations on other countries, on Hong Kong's ability to attract investment. And so tell us, a little, I'm going to give you my range of interest and you, you, if you, I'll just allow you to comment that like, in particular, what does this mean for Taiwan? What does this mean for the financial community? What does this mean for Europe? And I'm going to hold off on the United States because I know Mooney wants to specifically ask about the United States. Sure, sure. In many ways, it's extremely important for the rest of the world because it's a measuring stick for China's view about rule of law and its relationship with the West more broadly, because Hong Kong represents 
uh, Western society in so many different ways. At the same time, it may not be hugely important from an economic perspective because its significance to the overall Chinese economy has dropped. Uh, like I mentioned, for Taiwan, uh, the die has long been cast. There's no one in Taiwan looking to Hong Kong as a bellwether for whether one country, two systems, or some type of new relationship with China uh, would work. They already know that from their perspective that they can't accept the same deal, anything like it. China has said that, you know, there's a few more things we could give you, like your own military and et cetera. But very few folks in, in Taiwan, even those who are supposedly, you know, pro-Beijing or want better relations with, with, with the Chinese, uh, they don't look at Hong Kong as a model. That's, that's long since passed. This just reconfirms everything that they've already uh, thought already. For uh, Europe and others, Again, it's a signal of what is China willing to accept in terms of the complexity and diversity of your relationship with, with them. But most of them aren't going to lay down across the train tracks uh, because of what's happening in Hong Kong or in the South China Sea or, or elsewhere. It's just another sign of, of how the world is, is changing. And uh, they will speak up in human rights commissions or in other you know, international fora, in front of the media, uh, but will they actually do anything to fundamentally change the dynamic and the Beijing's calculus? I, I'm, I'm quite skeptical. So about the U.S., the U.S. has been or Donald Trump has been surprisingly restrained during this whole crisis. Should he express support for the protesters or take a stronger position? Yes, the U.S. has an important voice uh, because it has tens of thousands of Americans who are uh, living in Hong Kong. A lot of our trade with China goes through Hong Kong. Uh, we depend on Hong Kong for financial services. And as a good example of a well-functioning civil society where you, you can get both open society and growth together, it shows you that the Chinese argument that you can only have one or the other is not true. My sense is, is that for President Trump, the two issues that matter on China are trade and North Korea. Nothing else really is on his radar screen. And so uh, when he went to a meeting uh, in Osaka as part of the G20 on the sidelines met with Xi Jinping, uh, she asked if he would not speak up on Hong Kong. And he said, OK, I think that was a concession not worth making and not needing to be made. Uh, the U.S. could do more. Uh, we have the U.S.-Hong Kong uh, Trade Act, uh, which was passed in 1992, which says that the U.S. will treat Hong Kong as a different economic entity internationally relative to China, even after return to sovereignty and five years later, which we do, we don't have the same tariff schedule and other types of things with Hong Kong. We don't have the same type of export controls with Hong Kong. And so those things could be adjusted. We don't, those don't, those could, it'd be a big step to, to do those things. But if Hong Kong goes from being part of one country, two systems to one country, one system, it should be treated like the rest of China. But we should do everything we can to, to keep that from happening in a way that is inconsistent with uh, China's commitments to Great Britain in 1984 and in the, the basic law that governs Hong Kong and in its regular statements and pledges to the United States and the international community. What are the implications for the U.S.-China relationship if uh, Donald Trump changes his position? If he were to speak up? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm certain that Xi Jinping would be unhappy and say uh, that this is more evidence that what's going on in Hong Kong is another kind of color revolution, that it's uh, local 
anti-government activities that are egged on by international forces, something that, that they've uh, implied already. But they I, would I was going to ask, do, aren't they already saying that? Uh, there was a, uh, Beijing hasn't officially said that. There was a commentary issued in the China Daily, which is a state-controlled media outlet that has made that argument. I would expect it to move from sort of the press to an official statement. Some It may already affect their thinking. The Hong Kong uh, Macau uh, Affairs Office, which is Beijing's official body to engage with Hong Kong and Macau, had a press conference and said uh, that they're really worried about international interference in Hong Kong and Hong Kong's challenging of, of central authority, which gets you close to that same type of basic red line for them. So I think what they're trying to do is set this up in a way that if it gets more radicalized and it looks like that, then they'll have justification for taking even greater actions. So Scott, a little forecasting for our last question. You mentioned this, or you called this a small-scale conflict and said that a, a crackdown in the near future was probably not likely. It does, however, start to seem, and the numbers you compared of 20% of the population on the street are, are staggering. If this is, does become unsustainable, what would an alternative system look like in your eyes? If things really break down and the Hong Kong police themselves can't manage this, then the next step would be some type of external force from the Chinese central authorities, which is probably not going to be the People's Liberation Army. It's probably going to be the People's Armed Police, uh, which is paramilitary organization, which is trained for things like this. If they take that step and, and bring the People's Armed Police into Hong Kong, then that basically means game over. And you're going to see that followed, I mean, it essentially would feel like an occupation, uh, which, which it doesn't now. Uh, and you would see radicalization of protesters or, you know, clamping down uh, massive arrests. You would see a massive outflow of capital and greater condemnation, but no obvious easy solution for the rest of the community because international community, because at the end of the day, Beijing holds all of the cards. Scott Kennedy, thank you very much for joining us on All Tomorrow. Happy to be here. Mooney, what a depressing <laughs> interview with Scott Kennedy. It really is uh, such an amazing place that has held the attention and so many movies, so many books, so much written about Hong Kong and its very special character. And yet I just can't help walking away with the feeling that Hong Kong over time is just going to become increasingly irrelevant because... You know, uh, anybody who has visited Shanghai or Chengdu, you know, sees that these towns are becoming as important and slowly more important to China than Hong Kong will be. I mean, Scott calls this an entrepot, which means, you know, between one world and the other. Who needs an entrepot anymore when you have a place like Shanghai? What's amazing is that they planned this out for 50 years and 22 years in, it's already proving unsustainable. So I kind of agree with you, but I do believe that protests of this nature in today's day and age with social media, with so many implications on the geopolitical front, one other spark of some you know, outbreak of violence that is greater than what has happened could turn this apparently smaller scale conflict into a situation that will generate some very abrupt changes and be a true game changer in in this relationship well certainly she is not exactly known for his confucian patience but i think china's long-term view uh 
about things is going to is going to win out here and they're just going to let time play on their side. Yeah, just also we mentioned Donald Trump has been restrained. He's never been consistent really in his reaction. So that's also one to watch in the coming weeks. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. 